If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Ecclesiastes while we're getting started here. You see, there's a, a, a well, more well-known story in Greek mythology about a, a young man named Icarus. You might have heard of him. He flew too close to the sun. Uh, but the story of Icarus begins actually with his dad. Icarus's dad's name was Daedalus. Daedalus was a master architect. He was a great inventor, and unfortunately, though he was a master architect and great inventor, some of his inventions caused him some trouble, and a little bit of his own pride uh, became imprisoned by a king who he upset, King Minos, uh, put him in a tower with his son Icarus uh, and imprisoned him there. And being an inventor, he looked across the kingdom of King Minos from that tower and could see that King Minos controlled all the land and all the sea, but King Minos did not control the sky. And so uh, Icarus's dad set out to devise a plan that they would escape because they knew they could, would not make it far on land or by water, but they could escape by the air. So he gathered wings and used threads from clothes and blankets that they had and constructed a pair of wings for he and his son Icarus. Now Daedalus understood what it meant to fly and watching the birds had figured it out and being a master inventor had for the first time given man flight. And so he fastened a pair of wings to his son and gave him instructions. He said, now listen my son. He said, you cannot fly too low because if you get too close to the water, that might weigh down the wings and you will crash into the ocean. But if you fly too high, you'll get too close to the sun and the wings might melt. And again, you will crash into the ocean. And so they practiced a little bit and once they caught air, the two of them sailed into the sky and escaped the tower of King Minus and prison them in. And so as they flew uh, between the ocean and the sun in their escape, unfortunately in his naivety and his immaturity, Icarus, overwhelmed by the sensation of flight, uh, did no longer heeded his father's words and began to soar higher and higher and higher until he got too close to the sun. And the wax that the wings were made of that held the feathers together began to melt. And though he was left with nothing but his arms, he could not continue to fly and plummeted in the ocean and was never seen again. His father then once recovered his body, buried it on an island nearby where he was famed to rest. And the island and the waters around that island were named after Icarus. This is a, a painting capturing the fall of Icarus um, after he had plummeted into the ocean. And so the warning in the story of Icarus is to heed the father's instructions and not to be caught up in the joys of life and forget what it is that we've been told to do and to avoid all extremes. You see, if you fly too low or you fly too high, you find trouble. So let's take a look into Ecclesiastes from there. As we've been going through Ecclesiastes, we've been in the first few chapters and then we were chapter three and then we, we're gonna jump all the way to the end. In chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, if you want to turn there, um, chapter 12, verse 13, as Solomon has gone through uh, each of the different thoughts that he'd set his mind to and, and apply wisdom to these ideas, he discovers this final truth at the end of Ecclesiastes. He says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You see, after, after, not Icarus, Solomon, uh, being the wisest man 
uh, and, and blessed by God with wisdom to rule over the kingdom, uh, had set his heart to experience, to try, to test, to consider and apply wisdom to everything that is capable for man under the sun and to consider what does that mean for a person's life. And as he considered it all, when he came down to it, we talked about last night, what is the why? The why is God. As Adam Campbell says, he's like, it, it, it's understanding who you were created by and then putting purpose to your life in light of that. I know that story was kind of heavy, the turn, the twist there at the end, but it, it's meant to accentuate a single point is this, is that all throughout Ecclesiastes, there's this duality of thought that's hard. And we have to avoid the extremes of both. That there's a lot to do in life, but life is short. And not to be overwhelmed by the idea of the brevity of life or overwhelmed by the meaningless of life, but also not to be caught up in all the things that we can do and all the pleasures and joys, but to find this balance in the middle. To never forget that life is short, but not to get caught up and waste our life in just indulging in pleasures. And so we find ourselves in the middle. And in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter seven, if we go back, he actually talks about this in verses 16 and 18 up on the screen, you'll see it. It says, do not be over-righteous, which sounds like a weird thing, like don't be too righteous. And it's like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? It says, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise, why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool, why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. And that's an echo of that story we see in the story of Icarus, is that we are to realize that if we hold too tight to righteousness, we can become like the Pharisees in scripture and we can become too prideful in our own righteousness and even our righteousness can become our demise. We can become judgmental because no one's as righteous as me and I've got it all figured out and I'm so holy and God loves me and I'm doing it right. Look at all these other people and how bad they are and all of a sudden you realize even your righteousness can bring you down. Or to go the other way and grasp hold of life and, and seize every moment and experience and try to make life worth everything and live that existentialist life where God doesn't matter and I'm just gonna go you know, seize the day and live life that way, and in doing so, we become overly wicked. With too much and, and excess, we, we abandon God. And so what he says is, he says, grasp this concept that you need to understand that righteousness can also be a downfall, but also wickedness can be a downfall. And when you hold both of those, then it keeps you right there in the middle where you're supposed to be, where God calls us to avoid those extremes. Don't fly too close to the sun and, and don't get too close to the water. And we need to listen to the Father's voice and obey. And I think that's what Solomon is telling us when he says, fear God and keep his commandments. He continues as he goes through in chapter eight, he kind of continues to plow through the chapters. And in chapter eight, he basically says, fear God, because who are you? What do you know of the mind of God? You don't know what God's doing. You're just a human. And so there's this understanding of, of God is God and I am not. And that's a principle we have to hold on to. That fear God because you're not him. And you don't know his mind and you don't know why he's doing it. And don't be so arrogant to cast judgment on God when it doesn't make sense to you. Why would what God's thinking necessarily make sense to you? You're not God. 
And so as you experience life, too many times we can become selfish, prideful, and arrogant, and that turns into resentment when we don't understand why God's allowing things happen the way that they are, and then we step into that arena of pride to go, well, then I'm going to cast judgment on God. He's no longer good, because if he was good, he would do it the way that I think is right. And there's an arrogance in that thought that we have to guard our hearts from to understand that no matter what is happening, and this is the story of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, that there's a lot that's gonna happen in life. Love and hate, war and peace, laughter and tears. And in any of that, if we lose our understanding of who God is, if we lose the fear of the Lord, then we're no longer afraid to step up in pride. We're no longer afraid of God, and so we step into God's place, and we take his place. And when we do that, it's, the, it's a downward spiral. We fly too close to the sun. And that's the warning we find in Ecclesiastes. So something about me is that um, is I drink a lot of Dr. Pepper. It, it's a problem. Um, it, of all the drinks that are, pay, are available on the planet, and I kind of feel like Solomon, you know, I've tried everything. I've had Sprite, I've had Coke, I've had this, I've had that. And of all the things under the sun, uh, the end of all things that man can understand is that Dr. Pepper is by far the greatest drink ever created. All right, so, um, so to prove this point, I actually have a hat. This is how bad it is. I, little confession time, guys. I have a hat that my staff actually bought me that says Dr. Kipper. Like no joke, that's how bad it is. So, uh, but with that, what's interesting is like, I, I, I think of that as I think of the fear of the Lord. Like, what does it mean? Okay, okay, Kip, I'm supposed to fear the Lord. But what does that actually mean? How do I actually fear the Lord? And I think of it like Dr. Pepper. What makes Dr. Pepper so great is what? The 23 flavors. It's a little mix of the right amount of everything that comes together in a perfect combination. And the fear of the Lord is similar to that. It's not a fear of like, I'm afraid of God, like I'm afraid if a bear would jump out of the woods. It's different. Now, there's an essence of the fear of the Lord in a bear jumping out because you realize who you are instantly. You're not a bear, and in this fight you lose. And so there's a similarity there in that simple fear itself of understanding who you are. And so there's that in the mix. Another one of the flavors is a sense of awe. And when you realize who God is, if you just simply look around at his creation and you realize, I couldn't do this, and the awe that it makes you feel a little bit small, but at the same time a little bit big, and that awe just overwhelms you, a sunset that you've seen that you can't stop looking at, that awe, and then it, when you recognize that that's from the creator, you put a little bit of that in there and you mix it up. And then there's a reverence a realization that what God has done is perfect and holy, even if it doesn't make sense to us or maybe not look that way to us that it is because it's of God. And we revere him, we set him apart. There's a, there's a holiness, a sanctification that goes in there, that, that God is set apart. We don't mix him in with what's common. There's a special place for him, and that's what it means to revere him, to hold him as holy, holy and set apart. And you mix all of those emotions and feelings together and you get this fear of the Lord. And I would say, in, a, in kind of summarizing it, it's a right understanding that it puts all those together all at the same time. And as we pursue God and we understand him, we begin to look at life through the lens of God. When we understand that he's in control and that he's in charge and that everything we do should align with what he says because of who he is. That's what fear the Lord and keep his commandments means. And that's what it looks like. 
And so we've got this 23 flavors, if you will, of fearing the Lord. And so when we fear the Lord, we understand I'm not God, he's God, and then he is God and he's told me to do some stuff. Just like Icarus's father, he knows better. And he says, hey, let me give you some instruction. If you're going to live this life, as brief as it may be, it's worth living. I wouldn't have put you here if it wasn't. And so here's the instructions. Don't go too high. Don't go too low. Stay right about here. Follow me. And when we do that, when we keep in step with him, when we follow the father as Icarus should have, then we find life the way it's meant to be. And there's a hope that comes with it. But there's also a responsibility. That's where I want to go to the whiteboard with it, is this. We talked a little bit about this this week. And so as we looked at our timeline, there's this piece. We're going to start at the end now, like we've been doing so far. And we talked about how when Jesus uh, came to earth, right? And then he lived on the earth for those 30 years, taught for three. And so at the age of 33, Jesus goes to a cross, dies, was buried for three days and rose again. And then in 40 days later, he stands on a hill with the other 11 disciples and he gives them in Matthew chapter 28, he gives them what we know as the great commission. He says this, starting in 16, I'll read. It says, now the 11 disciples, remember Judas had already betrayed him, so he's not there. Uh, The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, And this is what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so he gives them the great commission. And so at this moment in 28, before Jesus then ascends into heaven with a promise that he would return at the end, He gives them these instructions to go and make disciples. I'll try to write neater. Some I've heard some of you were complaining about my writing. C-I-P-L-E-S. I can't actually write neat. Look at that. See how neat that is? Make disciples and teach them to obey. Those are the great commission. And then a promise. Behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus then ascends into heaven and he promises to come back. And this is where we find ourselves. So these 11 disciples, they go out and we get the rest of the New Testament books. All of the interactions and the writings and the letters to the early church about the very teachings that Jesus had given, they go and they teach them. Do this, do this. They set up churches. Those churches start living life. They make mistakes and then they write new letters. Hey, you're doing this a little wrong. Here's a little course correction. Follow this, do this. And that's what makes up your New Testament is the very writings of these guys going out and setting up churches and teaching churches how to live according to the teachings that Jesus gave them while he was on earth teaching. And then we have a silence of scripture. And now we're in this period of time we call the church age. I draw a building, but it's not a building. It's the people that are in the building. This is my favorite thing. You ever done the thing like this? Where you do the, you know, here's the church and here's the steeple. You open the door and here's all the people. Yeah, it's actually, here's the church. The, the people, this is the church. My favorite one, my, my son, Gray, he does this. He goes, here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the doors, where's all the people? They're on the roof. You know, <laughs> that's his favorite thing. Uh, but the church is the people the, inside the church. 
that's what God left behind. He didn't leave behind buildings, he left behind us. We have a good news, we have a gospel. That's what gospel means, it just means good news. What's good, what's good about the news? The good news is you're dying, but you have a hope. There's no hope without an understanding that you need hope. And so we have to have this tension again. Life is short, hell is hot, people are dying, but guess what? Jesus Christ came to give them away for eternity. That is the good news of the gospel, and it's only through him that we can have this eternal life. And we are to be the people who go and live accordingly and teach others what it looks like to be a disciple. A disciple is just one who is disciplined, meaning we avoid those extremes. We don't get too righteous and we don't get too wicked. That we follow and obey and we are an accurate reflection of who Christ was and who he instructed us to be. But there's an urgency to this gospel because we're somewhere right about here. The problem is we don't know how long that is because we don't know where this line goes. And that's the reality of life. And that's the beauty of life. There was another story of Pandora, uh, or not Pandora. It was, ah, oh, shoot, I forget her name now. Um, it's the one who, oh, my Greek gets mixed up sometimes. Um, she has the, uh, she knows things but can't control it. Who is it? I can't remember. Anyway, I forget the name. But it's the idea of knowing the future being, but being incapable of changing it. And that's kind of that tension that we live in, is that if we knew we were going to die tomorrow, we'd live differently, even though we couldn't change it. And so every day we have to live as if we might die tomorrow. That death is on our doorstep, but we don't live in fear of that. We live in joy of that because we have a hope beyond it. But we also have the next day. And it's the beauty of every day waking up, knowing that I get one more day. And that's the best way to live, knowing that God gave me one more day, I'm gonna live it for him. God gave me one more day, I'm gonna live it for him. And we live that way each and every day. And that's not depressing. While this theme of Ecclesiastes feels like it's riddled with this idea of hopelessness and like death's gonna destroy you and what's the point of everything? It's like the point of everything is that everything is made by God and you are here. And you were here for a purpose. God would not have wasted his time on you if you weren't here for a reason. He's God. And if you don't believe that, then you don't have a right understanding of who God is. God loves you. God created you. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you and he understands you. He cares about you. And he wants to use you for his glory. And we get to live in that. But we don't know how long. And so there's an urgency to this. That each and every person that we come in contact with that doesn't know this hope, life is meaningless for them until they hear about Jesus and the hope that he offers. And so we are to live our lives according to this truth. We are to live our lives in a way that when people see us, they see Jesus. When they see us, they see a reflection of the way that Jesus taught us to live. There's a phrase that says, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. Amen. Which means you should proclaim the name of Jesus with your mouth, but that's not the only way you do it. You also live it. So people will see Jesus in the way that you act, the way that you talk, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you dress even. And we are to be mindful that there is a God who loves us, but he is holy. 
He is an awesome God. He is full of wonder. And that same God, though he is so far beyond us, still loves us. He's the God of the big and the small. He's the God who braids the rings of Saturn. He knows every single hair on your head. That's the kind of God that I trust. That's the kind of God I put my faith in. And he's a jealous God for our attention and for our, for our worship. He loves to hear the praises of his people. Man, I got chills back there hearing you guys worshiping today. And I was thinking, I was like, you guys weren't worshiping like that when you came in on, on Friday. Something happened. You got a glimpse of what it could be each and every day. This is not a camp thing. This is a real thing. It's not a feeling. It's a truth. And that truth doesn't have to stay in this building. And that truth doesn't have to have a box lead blitz attached to it. That truth can go with you into your home, into your room, into your music, into your school, into your neighborhood, and on into your future, your future spouse, your future kids, your future everything, your work. That truth will take you and guide you through life when you live it according to Christ because you don't know how much time you have. And that's actually the good news because there's an urgency that keeps us aware that life is short and hell is hot. And we need to be about the gospel and about what God has called us to because he gives us a promise. He will never leave us or forsake us. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So he is worthy to put our trust, our faith, our hope in him. Every morning you wake up. It's a silly story, but there was a guy who used to go back in the history of Hume, way, way back. And when Hume first started, he was one of these guys, very boisterous, very outgoing, one of those guys who talked to anybody, real prankster, everybody knew him, you know, not a stranger to anybody. And he had one of those fun, just crazy personalities. And he told this story one time. He goes, to set my heart right and to follow Jesus, here's what I did. Every morning I get up and my feet hit the floor and I stood up from my bed. I straighten up my back and I go, reporting for duty, sir. And he's like, my life was God's. And I had to remind myself. And that's how I did it. Amen. I got up every morning and I said, reporting for duty. So the question for you is, how do you report for duty tomorrow? When you go back down to your homes, when you go back down to your churches, when you go back down to your schools, what does reporting for duty look like? God is with you. The truth of what you experienced this weekend, the God you saw here isn't just here. He will go with you everywhere you go for the rest of your life. And it's our duty to live according to that in the fear of the Lord and in keeping his commandments. That's the whole of scripture. God loves you. Never forget that. You are worth it. You are worthy. Love you guys. Love hearing your stories. Love seeing last night the response, the humility that it takes to say, God, I'm not right. And I want to be right. So thank you for being willing to trust God. You will not be disappointed. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you so much for the truth in your word, for the urgency of the gospel, and I thank you that you loved us. I know we don't deserve it. I know that, uh, that we are so far from the righteousness, but the good news is, is that it's not our righteousness, it's yours. 
And so thank you for giving us the righteousness of Christ so that we could be made pure, we could be made clean, and that we could inherit the sonship, the daughtership of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that that truth that you will be with us wherever we go can leave from this place and remind us that when we wake up tomorrow that we need to report for duty. That the whole duty of man is to fear you. Not to be afraid, but to fear, to revere, to awe. So thank you for being a God who is worthy of our fear. Help us keep your commandments as we go. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us so that we have a hope of eternity. Amen.